Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. You can find the show notes and learn more about ancient history at ancientheroes.net. Okay, everyone, I'm here with Jonathan Burgess, who is a professor of classics at the University of Toronto. He's the author of multiple books, including The Death and Afterlife of Achilles in 2009 and Homer in 2015. He's one of the world's leading experts in the Homeric epic poetry that we've talked about a lot on this show and the mythology of ancient Greece in general. And one of the reasons I'm really excited to talk to him is that I've come across his work many times researching online, especially researching the life of Achilles and the afterlife of Achilles. And his articles that I've come across are just absolutely incredible. And it's some of the most detailed, interesting work I've found about Achilles. In fact, uh, Professor, I just bought your book about Achilles last night on Amazon because I realized I had read the art. I had read a diff- uh, some different articles, but the book looked like it was much more depth about these things. So I thought I need to just go ahead and get the book. So I got that last night. And your most recent project is called Wake of Odysseus. And it looks like you've turned your focus to the Odyssey and Odysseus. So before we talk about what that project is all about, I was hoping that you could sort of frame up the Odyssey for the audience a little bit and basically give us the 101 on what the Odyssey is, who wrote it, when, you know, when it was written, and kind of what it's about. Thank you much. Thank you very much, Patrick, and uh, great to be here. I really appreciate your interest in ancient myth. And uh, the podcast podcast is just super, super that you're publicizing this stuff and getting these interesting stories out there. Thank you. Uh, So the Odyssey, that's an interesting question. Um, The Odyssey basically is the story of a soldier who takes a long time returning home and the wife and the other men interested in the wife aren't quite sure whether he's still alive. Mm. Um, and that, that's actually a pretty common story. And in fact, some people think that that basic plot, besides being the plot of specifically a myth about Odysseus, an ancient Greek myth, is a, a general tale type or a typological narrative And we have folk tales or we have comparative examples of this kind of tale from around the world. And that tale, you know, the names change and the places change, but involves the same thing where the soldier finally gets home and has to be careful because he's got rivals, usually not more than a hundred. It's over a hundred in the Odyssey, but you know, one or two or three or five or six, something like that. And he has to negotiate the situation, perhaps even violently, right? So in a sense, you could say the Odyssey of 24 books, right? And uh, we think the Odyssey and the Iliad were oral poems originally performed live by a bard, right? Uh, If you tried to perform in Greek, the Odyssey, that would take like 24 hours. So either you have an audience that uh, is drinking a lot of coffee or perhaps more likely you tell 
parts of it over many nights or maybe, you know, it's like a, a TV series over many, mm. many weeks, right? So that's the basic plot of the Odyssey. Uh, Penelope and um, the over 100 so-called suitors who want to marry her aren't sure that Odysseus is alive. And uh, in fact, the suitors are pretty sure. They're telling her, look, he's got to be dead by now. The, the war lasted 10 years and it's almost you know another 10 years since the war ended, so come on. And of course, there's no internet there's no, you know, police or detectives to, no passports to, to track this guy in, in this world. So, uh, and of course we know that uh, from Odysseus' own story that he almost died on many occasions. And in fact, he had a fleet, right? He was commander of a war fleet of about 500 men or so, and they all died. So <laughs> he was a lucky single guy to get home. So that's the basic story. And then I think, you know, you mentioned uh, my website, uh, wakeofodysseus.com. Mm. Um, that's more about the journey. And uh, we sort of talked ourselves before the podcast started uh, about how the journey in a way is more famous than the actual story of the Odyssey. The Odyssey as a piece of literature, as a poem, as a story, is brilliant. It's it's wonderful all the way through. But in terms of content, a lot of people today, when they think of Odysseus, they think of the long voyage. Mm. And they think of the monsters and the goddesses and the trials and the setbacks. And, and that really has a resonance down through time. So you could say that, in a sense, in the modern world, that story is more popular and the irony is that story is not really the story of the odyssey it's told by odysseus in books 9 through 12 four books out of the 24 books it's told by odysseus by his host his final host who eventually bring him back to ithaca that's the phaeacians who you know um, slowly get to know him Odysseus doesn't give his name at first, so they're not quite sure about this guy who washed up on their beach. But when he does reveal himself, they're like, oh, yeah, we know about the Trojan War. We've heard about Odysseus. You're that guy. Tell us. Tell us your story. You know, didn't that war end several years ago? Where have you been? It must have been quite an adventure. And he's like, yeah, it was. And here I go. Right, so it's an internal story. Uh, Homer, the bard, whoever Homer was, the, the voice of the narrator is not telling the story. The character Odysseus is telling the story for a long time, it takes four books because it's a long journey. And, and sometimes you even forget that this is Odysseus speaking, not Homer, because Odysseus is really quite good at telling the, 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 the story. And it's, it's quite a ripping yarn, right? It's, it, and it does have these supernatural things happening, goddesses, Circe, Calypso, and the so-called monsters, you know, Scylla, Charybdis, and, and Polyphemus, the Cyclops, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the funny thing is, I think um, a lot of people like that myth 
because they feel that it's an adventure, that mm. this guy, this hero, meets challenges, he meets bad people, he meets tricky goddesses, and he finds his way through it all. Right. Uh, he doesn't find a way for his, his 500 companions to return. So that becomes sort of an ethical issue in the Odyssey. <laughs> but if you're just thinking about the Odyssey in terms of the story of this one famous character, then it's quite thrilling. And it seems like an amazing tale. And it's his bravery and his intelligence that gets him home. And when you hear the story, you kind of identify with him. Say, all right, mm -hmm. Odysseus, boy. And I feel that way, you know, when I go on a boat trip on vacation or just getting on the subway and trying to get to work or, or whatever. I identify with that. But, um, you know, in, in Homer's version or the character Odysseus's version in Homer, he, he's always talking about how homesick he is, right? We have, we have a laugh at him usually when we read the Odyssey because we're like, you're homesick, you know, didn't you spend, uh, you know, uh, multiple years with Calypso the goddess? And he would say, hey, she, she didn't want to let me go. Zeus mm. had to force her to let me go. But then you could say, hey, Odysseus, you spent a year willingly with Circe having feasts and sharing her bed. And <laughs> right. you wouldn't have anything to say about that, right? So, um, but, but he keeps on saying, I wanted to get home. Uh, I wasn't looking for adventure. I just wanted to go straight home. I wanted it to be like a two week sail across the Aegean to the Ionian islands in Ithaca. And then there's storms blew me off track and then we were lost and then you know monsters were killing us so that's his attitude now i i think in fact uh the the myth this must have been a myth right this is not a story that homer invents i think this is a homeric version of a traditional myth it may be the myth of the return of odysseus featured his adventurous spirit like, you know, the siren story has him, um, on the advice of Circe, has him um, not plugging his ears with earwax as his companions do. And they tie him to the mast because he wants to hear that song. It would be safer to plug his ears and just go on. But he's so curious, he's so eager for knowledge and experience, he insists on hearing that song. And he does. So sometimes I think you see here and there the sort of pre-Homeric traditional character of Odysseus, the adventurer, who perhaps wasn't quite so eager to get home to his wife. Perhaps he was like, hey, let's keep on going on to the horizon and see what's beyond the horizon. So can you talk a little, there's so many things in your answer that I want to follow up on here. And I yeah. think one of the key things is this distinction between the Homeric stories and the ancient mythology in general and what may have existed already before we have these Homeric stories. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because that may not that may be something that the audience isn't totally aware of 
uh, that mm. these myths existed and then kind of Homer put his own spin on them. Um, this is my impression, but can you kind of uh, yeah. offer yours? Yeah, well, first I could say it's it could can, this could be a controversial topic mm. because we have no evidence for what existed before Homer. Mm. Uh, in fact, we really don't have any evidence. We have no evidence for Homer. This is not a historical person, right? There's, there's, he left no diaries. So probably there is no or not much writing at the time the poem was composed. And as I said before, the poem could easily have been composed orally and somehow recorded at a later time. Um, so they're obviously in that situation, there's no previous poem surviving, mm. right? There are no even records. Oh, this is a story people tell. And there's really no concept of literature as we think of it, not written literature in bookstores and uh, at libraries and at amazon.com or, or whatever, right? Uh, it's, it's stories that you tell and in, in that oral culture, bards had a special place mm. because they would tell the stories in meter and they would tell it in a long time and they had a, a rhythm to their stories and they had sort of special poetic vocabulary. So their versions of these traditional tales would be, you know, extraordinary expositions. They would be like shows that an audience would listen to and, and these shows would be remembered and the bard would become popular. That seems to be what happened with Homer. But basically, uh, if you look internally into the Iliad and the Odyssey, you see that the Trojan War, it's assumed that that's traditional. Uh, the Iliad doesn't tell the Trojan War. It just covers the last few weeks, not the last few weeks, it covers three weeks of a 10-year war. And it doesn't get to the end of the war. The war does end in that 10th year, but that doesn't happen in the Iliad. So, you know, it's just a, a microscopic portion of the whole 10-year saga. But nonetheless, here and there, characters and the main narrator, Homer, refer to events in the war, as if without necessarily explaining the events, as if the it can be assumed that the listeners, the original audience knows the story as I'm sure is the case. Now here and there, if there's special details, arguably Homer or his characters could be inventing details or adding details or changing the tone of the story. The mm. sort of thing I was just talking about, maybe Homer's adventures of Odysseus is somewhat different in tone or maybe you know, in some details than the traditional one. So that's the situation we have. And um, uh, what I think much can't be concluded, but I think we have to get away from thinking that Homer invented these stories. Hmm. I want to get back to this wake of Odysseus project. And yeah. I, was, I was looking at the website that you have uh, last night and I noticed that you've sort of mapped out, you have a map where it, it places some of these famous stories from the Odyssey, 
where he encounters Circe, where he visits the underworld and sees Achilles and some of the other heroes there, where he visits the Lotus Eaters. Can you just sort of explain what you're doing with this project and, and mapping out these different locations and things like that? Yes, and, and this sort of relates to what we were just talking about. When I said, in the modern world, there is the Odyssey and you can read it and you can see how the story is told of the wanderings of Odysseus. But nonetheless, even if you read it, even people that read it tend in their mind to want to change the story. Mm. This sounds like I'm, I'm saying they're doing something wrong, but of course you can react to any story, even a great story by a great writer in the way that you want and, and let your imagination run with it. So uh, just as a lot of people think of the wanderings of Odysseus as more like the adventures of Odysseus, right? Odysseus would say his wanderings. I didn't want to go to all those places, but people say, oh, it's an adventure. He wanted to check out, sail beyond the horizon, right? Uh, people want to locate these episodes on the map. And that's the term I use in this website, localization as this process. And uh, localization of the journey of Odysseus sort of has a bad name in Homeric studies because most people like me, professors who know the poem and know the history say, no, uh, these poems were off the map. Uh, and it's true, if you look at the Odyssey, Odysseus at least doesn't know who he is. I'm sorry, Odysseus doesn't know where he is, mm. where he's going. He's going, he's arriving at unknown, usually uninhabited places or inhabited by unusual creatures, monsters or goddesses. So far away from civilization. And since winds and storms have blown him off course, he has no idea really most of the time where he is. And that's all you get. Uh, he's brought back from the Phaeacians to Ithaca, but you know, before he gets back to Ithaca, he had, you know, once he was blown off course, he had no idea where he was. So in fact, there's no specific information in Odysseus's account as to where he was. And that's what the poem wants you to think. And to some degree, uh, the poem seems to suggest he kind of leaves the human world and enters a sort of supernatural world. Some mm. people call it a fairy tale world. I think there's something to it. I, I, that's a little bit exaggerated. And I do think that um, at the time of the composition of this poem, we know that the Greeks had been expanding into the Western Mediterranean and setting up colonies on South Italy and <clears throat> the island of Sicily in particular. So I think that's a context uh, for these stories. Uh, I think it, you might uh, theorize that sailor tales or colonial tales of this, these new lands out to the West, right, to Italy and Sicily were not generally known to the Greeks at this early time period, sort of inspired 
uh, sometimes the ta those tales, those sailor tales, might have been a little bit, you know, like a fishing tale, a little bit exaggerated, a little bit uh, worked up to be entertaining and amazing. So you could see how, with a few steps, you get to this incredible tale of the wanderings of Odysseus, right? Um, so I think there's a context there, but the truth is the Odyssey itself doesn't want you to think that he's in Sicily or mm. Malta or what we call Italy now, right? So, uh, so technically you could say localization is wrong. And, and some homerists get all worked up about this and say, why, why are these people wasting their time on this? And it's true, uh, some sort of modern localizers, they're kind of like Ripley's, believe it or not. Uh, they're engaging in sort of a hobby and they get this theory. They, they're usually not classicists. They pursue it as far as it goes or they write a book about it. And mm. it's kind of like a, a genre book. It's, it's like, hey, what about this? What if he went here? And um, well, number one, I think those kind of books are fun even if I don't believe that they're right. And uh, I think uh, some of those theorizers actually travel to the places and look around and say, hey, was this the beach where Nisikawa was when she found Odysseus shipwrecked on the shore? You know, and uh, these are beautiful places. Talk about Sicily, Italy, wonderful places, interesting places. So, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. Uh, it's kind of interesting, and you might learn a little bit about geography as well as about the Odyssey. Uh, though I'm just saying you don't necessarily want to believe these arguments that you can mix the two. The other right. thing is, in the ancient world, this was done by the ancient people, by ancient cultures. So, and that's what the Homers don't necessarily get. This is part of the process. Right, uh, just as the myth wasn't created by Homer, it wasn't owned by Homer. So, and a lot of myth was not about, you know, ripping good yarns to entertain you. Myth for the early Greeks was a kind of proto-history, right? They didn't have history. There was no written records. So instead of just giving up and say, we don't know, you know, I, we know about our grandfather's time, but beyond that, we have no idea who invented our town or where we came from. No, they would, they would fill in those gaps with traditional myths. You, you just, as a culture, want to do that. So often the myths featuring heroes didn't focus so much on, you know, monsters and travel, but the hero would go to a certain place and found a town. He would start a town. And if you lived in that city in historical times, you say, hey, you know what? This is a place that Hercules came to and he started it. So isn't that cool? They, they were proud of that. And sometimes more specifically, they would say Hercules or Perseus or Theseus or Odysseus had a child with some local woman or a goddess. And that, in fact, we can... Uh, we, we, we can trace our lineage. This is all, we would say from the outside, this is all made up, right? This is not historical, but we can trace our lineage back 10 generations and say that, you know, uh, people living in our town 
are descended from, from Heracles. You know the story of the Aeneid. You've got Aeneas um, in myth descended from the goddess Aphrodite. And uh, he goes to, eventually in Roman myth, he goes to Italy. And one thing leads to another and you get Romans and Roman culture and you get people like Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar saying, hey, you know, isn't that pretty cool? Of course, we should be in control because we go back to Aeneas and therefore Aphrodite. So these were, uh, we might say, exploited myths, but really I think that was part of the purpose and process for myth-making, to make them relevant to your place or your culture or your civilization. So that's what's going on with, with the, this localization, right? Uh, people living in Italy and Sicily would say, hey, uh, Odysseus went here or one of his crewmates stopped here or someone died here and was buried here. For the Greek colonists, this might be a way of saying, hey, you know, I know we're outsiders, but hey, Odysseus preceded us. So we kind of really do belong, or eventually natives of these lands, you know, however you feel about this in a colonial context, natives of this land, you said, you know, well, now we're part of the Roman Republic or the Roman Empire. So, you know, we're part of the mix of this larger culture. So we're buying in. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to celebrate Odysseus as a culture hero. And uh, we're happy to say, we're happy to now, at least we're happy to say, yeah, probably that's right. Odysseus stopped here for to get some water. And uh, we can say that, you know, uh, there's a little bit of myth uh, associated with our locality. Essentially, it sounds to me like you're just you're making the case, which seems, uh, you know, which seems almost obvious in a sense that the way that the way that the ancient people uh, of Greece interpreted these myths and mapped these myths onto their reality is part of studying these ancient cultures. Um, we, so. yeah, yeah, we've looked at Alexander the Great quite a bit in this podcast, and and reading the biographies about him, he believed he was descended from Heracles and Achilles and, and his go. adventures. He would, you know, there, you know, he would try to interpret these myths and say that, Oh, this must be where Dionysus did X or where Heracles did Y. And in that kind of thing, when he was in these foreign places, um, I think uh, Robin Lane Fox wrote a book about this kind of thing with traveling Greeks and how they interpreted the places they were within the lens of the mythology they already had. Yes. Um, so I, I guess with, with the map on your website that I referred to, is that looking at, is that looking at where the ancient Greeks believed some of these things were happening? Yeah, actually uh, the front page of the website has two maps. Mm. So one is schematic. It's just, it's like a oval. And that sort of arranges the episodes according to the sequence of when they happen. And then I think I put the underworld in the center. Right. Though, though in the Odyssey, you get to the Odysseus gets to the underworld from the, from the edge of the earth, apparently the far west. It's not very clear. As it, because there was a concept you could, it's sort of a flattish earth. You could get to the underworld by just 
going around <laughs> this mm. side. Um, but then there is a modern map with a bird's eye view. And um, so the places are marked there. So that sort of reflects localization mm. uh, and to some degree localization in the ancient world. And the Alexander comparison is very apt. You, you, you're exactly right. Alexander is just being normal as one of these leaders who said, hey, I've got, I'm important because I have lineage, goes back to a hero. Mm. And they believe these heroes were real, right? Which I don't. I don't think there really was a historical Odysseus or Achilles, and sorry to disappoint anyone uh, about that. But um, and then also this interaction between local and sort of panhellenic history or myth. So these localities that Alexander went to would buy into the myth, or perhaps at least react to it. You know, maybe in their legends, Alexander is uh, you know a bad guy. And that's cool, too. That's just how myth works. And then the Alexander historical story becomes a kind of a legend or myth that's as wild as the wanderings of Odysseus in the so-called Alexander Romance, mm. which is just a title for a whole bunch of different stories, but kind of the same, but different versions of stories that introduce you know monsters and um, unusual human people um, supernatural events and supernatural beings creatures and humans that alexander in this version of the story meets just as odysseus meets the same kinds of things do you one one comparison between the iliad and the odyssey that strikes me Obviously, there are fantastical elements in the Iliad. There's gods and goddesses and all these things. But it also, in some ways, seems to me to be almost more realistic with the depictions of battle. It seems almost a little more grounded in a certain way. Whereas, like you said, with the Odyssey, we have um, Odysseus almost in a semi-fantasy-inspired world. Does that... Am I on to anything with that thought or, you know, yep. um, or are these or, or are the epics uh, very much consistent with kind of the world they describe from your perspective? Yeah, you are on to something and it's a general truth, which I'll add some complications to, but a general truth that it seems that the Homeric epics, both epics are more realistic than, say, myth in general. Mm. from antiquity, from ancient Greece. Uh, part of that is these are very long epics. So, and, and again, we don't have pre-Homeric epics, but I suspect that those epics and the evidence that we have suggests as much, were much shorter. So, and focus on action, whereas Homer fills things out with lots of details. I'm sure he's adding lots of details. And also, he has his characters talk a lot, which is great for characterization. So you kind of feel you get to know Odysseus or Achilles or Andromache, the wife of Hector, who has amazing speeches in the Iliad. You kind of get to know their character and their emotions and probably 
you, you wouldn't get that from a normal telling of a myth that focuses on the amazing things they do, not the feelings they express. You see what I mean? So, um, and, and you could say that the Homeric epics therefore seem to be about not so much the past and amazing memorable things, they, they are about that, but there's a tone to them that seems to be about the human condition. Mm. Right, so obviously Achilles and Odysseus are very much different from us, but you read how they talk and think and what they worry about and how they express themselves and they're amazingly articulate, but they do speak like humans. They don't speak like, you know, in a biblical language, like they're, you know, grandiose heroes on stage. They, they talk like humans and the syntax and grammar, if you're trying to translate the Greek, is hard to read because they'd start and stop, interrupt themselves, go off on a new tack or inconsistent. It, it's very effective because you feel like you're listening to humans, right? So that's where you're on to something. Now, um, there certainly is supernatural aspects to both poems. You have the gods, after all. Right. So same with the Iliad. You could say on the ground, it seems very realistic. It's just tough war, and there's plague, and there's food or lack of food. There's death, uh, gruesome death and suffering. But you have the gods watching all this and sometimes interfering with the battle. So mm. that's very supernatural, right? That's not realistic. In the Odyssey, you have Athena helping Odysseus in his return. And you've got Poseidon not so happy with Odysseus in his return. And at the end, you have Athena and Zeus helping Odysseus in his uh, vanquishing of the suitors. Um, uh, the other thing I'll say is, you know, we were talking about the wanderings. Obviously, that's very supernatural. It might be good from an narratological point of view to, to emphasize that this is a character's tale. So, you know, Homer's talking all the time about gods and goddesses, but not so much about, you know, monster stories. So you could say that you can find a lot of supernatural material uh, going to the underworld, as well as meeting monsters. And Odysseus is, words, but it's secluded to that. Same thing with the Iliad, say with, um, you've got Glaucus in book six of the Iliad telling the story of Bellerophon, which is kind of like an, an adventure hero tale where he has to fight the Chimera, which is, you know, a hybrid monster and Amazons, right? Which is mythological female warriors. So that's pretty off the map, um, you know. So you you get glimpses of the supernatural mm -hmm. world, but usually through the the words of characters. I want to also pick up. You mentioned uh, your belief that Achilles and Odysseus are not historical figures, and I think that's safe to say that that's generally a consensus, more or less. Um, you know, I. I don't know about that. I, some people want to believe it, but we can talk more about what we could call historicism. 
Or well, it, and that's what, and I think that's what my my question is getting to. I've talked to many different archaeologists and historians on the show, and I've noticed that there is a discrepancy in diff, you know, in a debate over how much history in quotes actually exists within these epics versus people in the eighth century uh, seeing coming across ruins from Mycenaean era or something like that and kind of creating the and kind of projecting back onto the past and inventing these these stories versus a long oral tradition. And I just want I, I guess I'll just put this to you as you know, um, I don't know to what extent you're you focused on this, and and um, and I guess my question would be: Do you have a do you have an opinion about kind of the the historicity of these epics? If there's any historical value going back to the Bronze Age, and then secondly, what is your what what advice do you have for, to that person that we all maybe not we all, but there there's this temptation to look for history to look for bronze age history within these epics. And I think many people have had that temptation. And because there's been these things like finding sites like Troy and Henrik Schliemann and all of this, like there's this sense that maybe, maybe there's more history than, than we thought. So, okay. That's a complicated question. I just want to kind of put that out to you to hear what your thoughts are generally on on this matter (laughs) Uh, it's a great question and you expressed it well i'll try to be concise and and make several points briefly and i'll try Mm. not to get into too much trouble perhaps the the best way to uh to um sort of be inclusive of everyone listening Mm. is to say you know just as i was saying it's natural it's okay you know, there's no myth police in antiquity or the modern world, right? So it was okay for Homer to change the story, or at least change the tone. Maybe he had to stick to the basic plot. I think he did. But as we were talking, uh, maybe he changed the tone of the wanderings of Odysseus. And, and maybe he expanded the story and made it more realistic. Same with the Iliad. So that's okay. Uh, we celebrate that because I think it's it makes for great literature, but it's it's okay for every, everyone. And as I tried to say, it was okay for the ancients to localize the journey. If they wanted to say, this is important to us, let's just say that, okay? Yeah, sure. Yeah, Odysseus was here, or Odysseus is buried in that hill over there. Mm. You've got like 10 places in the ancient world saying that, right? So they're not all right. And none of that is historical, I think. But, you know, who are we to say, no, you can't say that. It, it worked for them. And, and that's really what myth was supposed to do. It's supposed to work for society, not just be like, you know, a TV show to entertain you. So there's that. Um, it's a uh, second point I would make is it often is a viable perspective to look for, say, a kernel of truth or history for any story. 
uh, the fact is, uh, on the basis of what I've been saying, is that myth meant something to real people living in real places, right? Mm, right. If you look at the myths, the, the spatial geography is always important. You know, uh, except for Odysseus, he doesn't know where he is. Most, most myths have heroes like Heracles. Even Heracles gets out to the far west. But, you know, if the, if the adventures of Heracles are on the Greek peninsula, as the, the various uh, adventures of Theseus are, or you're going to an island, or you're going to Asia Minor, right? Uh, even before we talk about Troy, it's quite clear that the myth of Troy is about Asia Minor, what we would call modern Turkey. That's, that's not in doubt. So they were placing these myths in real places. And I have to say, you know, I didn't get to Greece till after I was teaching a myth course, right, to mm. 1997. And I was like, hmm, I'm, I've got to really change my perspective because I'm going to these places, whether it's Athens or islands or, you know, uh, localities, natural localities uh, out away from the cities. I was like, wow, this is, this is part of the mental map of the people telling these maps and listening to these maps. They are thinking about these heroes as being in precise places. Hmm. So that's another reason to look for reality. And you can say, you know, some people say, what about a cyclops? What is that? You know, maybe they dug up some bones. And, you know, one theory is that, you know, the, there was a pygmy elephant. If you dig up the bones, there's a big cavity in the middle of the face where the trunk would go. Someone mm. might have said, wow, this looks like a giant human skeleton, but with a single eye. And then you create a story of a cyclops. Maybe, you know, it's possible. Uh, my caveat there is I worry that some people rush to the context, historical context, so as to replace myth with reality. Hmm. Now, I've already indicated that I want to have historical and cultural context, say, colonization by the Greeks in Western Mediterranean. I think that's a great cultural context for the story of Odysseus traveling in the Mediterranean, right? But I want to stay, I want to stay with the literature and the myth. Hmm. I don't want to put it to one side and say, aha, this is the reality. Some people, I think, are not happy with myth. Uh, in the modern world, sometimes myth means lie. It's, it's a fake. Mm. Uh, and uh, so they kind of are more comfortable with reality. It's a, it's a scientific age we have now, right? The modern right. World. And perhaps they enjoy also just sort of the mystery, solving the mystery, right? It, it, feels, um, it feels great to have a theory and say, here's some evidence. And, you know, this makes sense. That pygmy elephant, aha, this is what, it's all a mistake. They were all confused. But when they wrote, wrote the story or told the story, but in reality, we now know, as they did not, what was really going on. So you see how, where I'm going here, I think we need to maintain some respect for the story. 
Now for Troy, uh, full disclosure, I'm not at all confident that there was a Trojan War. A hmm. uh, better way of putting it, I don't see why we have to worry about that. Uh, perhaps the starting point would be in terms of archaeology, and isn't it great that Mycenaean civilization was discovered hmm. after being the evidence for which the written evidence almost disappeared. And we only have the linear B, which was uh, translated with difficulty right in the mid 20th century. And then the archeological evidence was mostly underground and dug up by modern archeologists. So isn't that great that through that evidence, they could reconstruct a, a prehistoric, by which I mean, there's not real thorough records and the history was lost in antiquity, but we can recover on the basis of this evidence, a prehistoric Greek, proto-Greek Mycenaean civilization. That's super, that's just great for classics, for knowing stuff about the ancient world. And it gives us all sorts of clues about where literature, ritual, culture came from, uh, including religion. And there is continuity. You know, the, those linear B records do indicate knowledge of gods who were worshipped in the second millennium BCE and then still were being worshipped in the surviving literature that we have. So that's really amazing. Uh, and, and you could imagine, I have no problem imagining that Mycenaeans were fighting with other people, uh, perhaps in Asia Minor or the East. And... Um, that kind of thing led to the idea that, you know, wouldn't it be a cool story to have a war between Greeks and non-Greeks? And then, you know, one thing leads to the other and the heroes were great. And it took 10 years, you know, it took a long time. Though right. Surely the myth grew and developed over time. Uh, I don't see in the historical evidence that uh, we have any smoking gun for, one of the layers of Troy, right? There's very many hmm. as being something that was destroyed by Greeks, Mycenaean Greeks. Hmm. I just don't see it. And I, I think, well, no one can say that for sure. Right. You have to, and there's, you know, 50, 75 years ago, say in the post Schliemann age, there was an eagerness to make those conclusions or argue, well, which layer was it? Which is the best candidate with the assumption that there really was a war? Well, that was jumping the gun. I, you don't have to assume that there was a war. Uh, the other thing is Schliemann, mm. you know, uh, he has his place in history, <laughs> saw it through. Um, but, you know, I, I see him as someone what I know of his life and his writings as someone who celebrated Greek myth and Homer as ideas. I don't see that he really appreciated Homer as literature. Hmm. And I don't see that he appreciated myth as myth. And sometimes he would say things like, hey, if you know the story of the Trojan War wasn't real, I wouldn't bother with reading the Iliad. Hmm. So I have a problem with that kind of rationalistic 
historicist perspective that wants to get rid of the myth and replace it with something that we and the sort of superiority complex that we have, right? We know better than them. They told these stupid stories and they added lies. They didn't even know what the real, what the real history was, right? So here we are to save the day and tell everyone for all time what really happened. So you see, I hope that's modulated carefully so you can see where I'm coming from. No, no, absolutely. And I have to say, I'm so thankful I came across your work because, you know, my first impression was wanting to really falling into that trap of just wanting to understand, you know, what really was the Trojan War and were these heroes historical and kind of overlooking what you're talking about, sort of the meaning and utility of these myths and the actual uh, the actual history of these myths may be the historical impact they had on the people that we are studying in the ancient world that we know more about. And if I hadn't, have, you know, when I came across your work, it made me refocus a bit and it gave me a different perspective. And in talking to you today, I'm still interested in the Bronze Age from the standpoint of what was it like? What what glimpses might be out there? But mm -hmm. I'm also even more interested in a sense of the the how these myths shaped ancient Greece after right. the Bronze Age and into the Classical Age and all of that. So uh, it's very, I think, an invaluable uh yeah. perspective and and i really appreciate Good. the work that you've published and i've talked too much if i could just add two quick thoughts to that number one i think of myself as a classicist mm. who does literature and archaeology who, who takes on everything that's relevant mm. and the archaeology and the cultural history is relevant i mean as a, a literary critic yeah, I'm interested in characterization and plot and similes and metaphors, sure, and meter. But I'm also interested in these things. I mean, I've, I've given many lectures on the archaeology of Hisarlik, the, the Turkish hill, mm. where we know that uh, historical Troy was, you know, Romans and Greeks lived there. And perhaps that's the argument, prehistorical Greeks, right? So, and I've given lectures on Troy, the history of Troy, or the truth and fiction of Troy to the general public as well. So it's a great topic. But uh, I just think that is one part of the picture. You don't have to be on one side or the other. And the other thing, just as a final word, I would say, perhaps you could say that if Greek expansion into the Western Mediterranean is the general vague, non-specific context for a story like The Wanderings of Odysseus, or some of those far-reaching wanderings of Heracles, you could say that it must be correct that Mycenaean expansion and clash with other civilization, that's got to be in some way the context for a story about Greeks fighting with non-Greeks in the Trojan War. Hmm. I, I don't think these stories come out of nowhere. Right. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. The subject to me just 
grows more interesting by the day. The that we have ancient Greece, and at the start of it, we have these incredible epics. Uh, I mean, it's it's amazing. Um, thank you for talking to me. Uh, we talked some about your website, wakeofodysseus.com, which features your current project uh, on the Odyssey and the places that it was localized in ancient times. Is there anywhere else that you'd like to direct listeners to, to check out or follow you online? Oh, well, I, I think we've, uh, you've covered it pretty much. Uh, I might say, um, I, I hope to produce sometime in the next couple of years, a new book. Mm. And the working title is the travels of Odysseus. Mm. And that obviously references the wanderings, but, Beyond that, uh, there were stories, and you could call these legends, maybe they're local myths, of Odysseus after he gets back to Ithaca, heading out again. You know, this apparently adventurous Odysseus, mm. restless Odysseus, and, you know, having a new wife somewhere else. And maybe returning back to Ithaca, or perhaps not, having children elsewhere, uh, especially in Northwest Greece. Sometimes the stories feature Italy. Uh, and sometimes these stories have Odysseus um, being buried in these non-Ithacan places. In fact, there's no secure information that the historical Ithacans, the ancient Greeks, thought that Odysseus was buried on Ithaca. Mm. So that's like, you know, uh, myth, you can... Uh, you could buy into it. You could say you can have competing local versions. And if you want Odysseus to be buried in your town, you just uh, create a story and get enough people to believe it. And then you've got a legend, at least a local legend going. Well, and I remember it reminds me of some of the work you did about the different places that people place the tomb of Achilles across oh, yeah. the ancient times, which is a whole nother, yeah. a whole nother subject. So there's a lot more we can cover. I think we should talk again, perhaps when uh, your next book is is due to come out. Okay. And again, I just I just want to say thank you uh, for publishing the work you have. It's been really influential on my thinking and and my interest in the ancient world. And um, and yeah, I look forward to hopefully talking again sometime. And thank you, Patrick. Keep up the good work with your podcast. It's really wonderful for us to have you talking to bringing the word out there about classics to end myth to the general public. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Professor Burgess. Talk soon. Okay. Have a good, good day. You too. Thanks to Derek Feister for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Until next time. <laughs>